This is not the beginning of the police state. This is the police state. Welcome to Biopics Mostly Suck, the podcast where we tell the true story behind movies based on a true story. Today, we're going to share part two of our discussion about the movie The Trial of the Chicago 7. A movie about the trial of seven, well, really eight defendants, including Bobby Seale, for crossing state lines to incite a riot during the 1968 Democratic Convention in Chicago. The movie was written and directed by Aaron Sorkin and stars Eddie Redmayne, Sasha Baron Cohen, and Joseph Gordon-Levitt. My guests for today's episode are my frequent collaborator John Helix, a local musician in the San Diego area. Find him on Facebook and Twitter at John Helix Official. Our good friend Don will also join us to talk about the movie. As you may know, we've been on a bit of a hiatus. We've been relaxing a little bit, taking a step back from putting these episodes together, and just kind of going at our own pace. And we're doing this, so the project continues to be enjoyable and something we like to do, rather than something we feel like we have to do and that becomes a chore. We're taking a fresh look at the structure of the episodes. We're going to try to make some changes and see how those changes work. And if this is a podcast that you enjoy then please do us a few small favors. First, stay subscribed. The episodes will be sporadic, but we want them to be really, really good when you listen to them. Second, tell your friends to subscribe. And third, send us some feedback. Let us know if you like any of the changes we're making. You can reach us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the handle of at Mostly Suck, or you can visit our website at biopicsmostlysuck.com and send us a message. The Trial of the Chicago 7 gets a 7.8 out of 10 rating from the Internet Movie Database, an 89% fresh rating from Rotten Tomatoes, and a 76% rating from Metacritic. The movie won a couple of awards for the Outstanding Cast at the Screen Actors Guild Awards and the Best Screenplay for Aaron Sorkin at the Golden Globes. As I speak... At the Academy Awards, it is nominated for five awards, including Best Screenplay, Best Supporting Actor for Sasha Baron Cohen, and Best Picture, and it got shut out. How is the trial of the Chicago 7 as a movie? And how is it as a medium to document the history of what happened in a dark, but unfortunately recurring period of American history? We will rate the movie as entertainment and as fact, and give a grade at the end of the episode. There will be spoilers in the discussion. And it's going to get pretty dark on the subject matter. If you were upset in any way about what was presented in the film about the trial, be prepared to become enraged about what really happened. If you're ready, let's get started. And if not, just hit pause. We'll still be here. (laughs) 
All right, so let's go ahead and talk about the trial. What was in the movie? Members of the Chicago 7 disrupt the court with antics and mock the judge. Judge Hoffman is biased towards the prosecution and is possibly racist with some mental decline taking place. He continually refuses to allow Bobby Seale to represent himself, stating that he is represented by William Kunstler. Kunstler and Seale repeatedly refute the judge's assertion. So what really took place during the trial? The trial lasted five months, from September of 1969 into February of 1970. The film leaves out some of the antics from the Chicago 7 and partially displays others. At one point, Abby Hoffman did a handstand on the defense table. Uh, Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman really did wear judges' robes, but only Hoffman wore a police uniform underneath his. What the movie leaves out is that when the robes dropped to the ground, they both wiped their feet on them. Hoffman also told the judge that his actions were, quote, a Shonda for de Goyim. And would you translate that Yiddish, please? So a Shonda is a shame. And then the Goyim is a, is a nation. So it essentially it's what, what was happening with that trial was the shame of our nation. Let me go ahead and read a list of the prosecution witnesses. We had Robert Murray, police sergeant, Robert Pearson, undercover investigator, Frank Riggio, police detective, Dwayne Okelpeck, reporter, William Frapoli, undercover investigator, and Erwin Block police officer. Do you notice anything missing from that list that was presented in the film? For the prosecution? Yep. Uh, the young undercover cop who was the girlfriend of Hayden. There are no female uh, law enforcement mentioned as a prosecution witness. And that's because Jerry Rubin wasn't honeypotted by an agent. In fact, he attended the trial with his longtime girlfriend mm. with him. In reality, Reuben was tailed by Robert Pearson, an undercover investigator, who did not arrest Reuben in Grant Park as he prevented the sexual assault of a female protester. There was a fight over the flag, but it was the fight that we discussed about the American flag being replaced by a communist flag. Mm -hmm. Reuben was arrested on the street when he and a friend were looking for a place to eat. According to newspaper columnist Jack Mabley, who witnessed Reuben being placed into an unmarked car, quote, I have heard Reuben speak, and he was obscene and revolting. In America, a man may be arrested for obscenity or revolution. But Reuben was grabbed off the street and rushed to jail because of what he thinks. This is the way it is done in Prague. This is what happens to candidates who finish second in Vietnam. This is not the beginning of the police state. This is the police state. Reuben, by his account, was threatened with beating and death, slugged, bullied, and told, You guys ruined our city. You, you, Reuben, are responsible. Do you like our city? We hope you do, because you're going to be put in jail here for a long time. It is true that two jurors received threatening notes that were supposed to be from the Black Panther Party. In the film, the discussions take place in Hoffman's chambers, but the discussions with these jurors took place in open court. Question for you. In the movie, how many jurors dropped off the trial? Was it four? It's been a little while since I've watched. Well, what we have is we have one juror being questioned, and the scene ends with Judge Hoffman saying, bring in the second juror. And then we cut to another scene. This is basically true. One juror dropped off as a result of the notes. 
But the second juror was asked if she could be impartial, and she remained on the jury. Hmm. Now, we're going to play a game. We're going to play Sorkin or not Sorkin. <laughs> cool. As fans of Aaron Sorkin, which we all are, <laughs> we know Sorkin loves long monologues. Your goal at this moment is to tell me which of the three monologues I am about to read were written by Aaron Sorkin, and which come from the trial transcripts. Monologue number one. Yippee, among other things. He said that politics had become theater and magic, that it was the manipulation of imagery through mass media that was confusing and hypnotizing the people in the United States, and making them accept a war which they did not really believe in, that people were involved in a lifestyle that was intolerable to young folks, which involved brutality and police violence as well as a larger violence in Vietnam, and that ourselves might be able to get together in Chicago and invite teachers to present different ideas of what is wrong with the planet, what we can do to solve the pollution crisis, what we can do to solve the Vietnam War, to present different ideas for making the society more sacred and less commercial, less materialistic, what we could do to up-level or improve the whole tone of the trap that we all felt ourselves in as the population grew and as politics became more and more violent and chaotic. Don, Sorkin or not Sorkin? Not Sorkin. Not Sorkin. John, Sorkin or not? Not Sorkin. Correct for both Mobe of you. somebody, right? Somebody from Mobe. Nope, you're both wrong. Allen Ginsberg, during his Aww. testimony, answering the question of what Abby Hoffman said to him in February of 1968. All right, you both have a point each. Monologue number two. I'm outraged to be in this court before you. I discovered on Saturday that Ralph Abernathy, who is the chairman of the mobilization, is in town and can be here. And because you took the whole day from us on Thursday by listening to this ridiculous argument about whether Ramsey Clark could take that stand in front of the jury, I am trembling because I am so outraged. I want you to put me in jail if you want to. You can do anything you want with me if you want to, because I feel disgraced to be here. John, Sorkin or not Sorkin? Yeah, Sorkin. Sorkin. Don, Sorkin or not Sorkin? Not Sorkin. Not Sorkin. Ding, ding, ding. Don 2-1 to John. That was William Kunstler during ah. the trial. It uh, feels very Sorkin-esque, though. I, I, I do, it does. I, 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 I was mostly guessing there. All right. Yeah. 2-1 Don's favor. Last monologue, number three. Okay. You have George Washington and Benjamin Franklin sitting in a picture behind you, and they were slave owners. That's what they were. They owned slaves. You're acting in the same manner, denying me my constitutional rights. Don Sorkin or not Sorkin? Not Sorkin. Not Bobby Seal. John? Not Sorkin, Abby Hoffman. Uh, Bobby Seal from the court transcript, just prior to being bound and gagged in the courtroom. And now we come to the eighth member of what is referred to as the Chicago Seven, Bobby Seal. Seal was the co-founder of the Black Panthers along with Huey P. Newton. He was charged, along with the Chicago Seven, for crossing state lines to incite a riot. Seal was in Chicago at the time of the convention as a last-minute replacement for Eldridge Cleaver, a fellow leader in the Black Panther Party. And the reason why Eldridge Cleaver was not there is his probation officer would not authorize that he could travel to Chicago. Unlike the Chicago 7, Seal did not have an attorney present at his trial. This is covered in the movie. Mm -hmm. His lawyer, Charles Gary, had to have unexpected gallbladder surgery in Oakland, California, and requested that the trial be postponed to November 15th. 
The trial was scheduled to begin on September 24, 1969. Judge Hoffman refused the request to postpone the trial. There was some question as to why. Hoffman seemed to believe insistently that Seal had counsel. This may be because lawyers other than Gary were brought in for pre-trial hearings, but they were not prepped to represent Seal at Hoffman? trial. Hoffman? Judge Hoffman. Judge Hoffman. I've read the transcript of contempt charges levied against Seal from Judge Hoffman. The number of times Seal or William Kunstler, defense lawyer for the Chicago 7, insists that Seal does not have representation occurs about three times as often in the transcripts than it does in the film. Seal repeatedly requests to cross-examine witnesses, repeatedly attempts to object to falsehoods brought forward by the prosecution, and repeatedly attempts to assert his rights to representation. In the film, Seal had Fred Hampton helping him with his defense. In reality, Seal was alone in his efforts, with the exception of Kunstler coming to his defense against Hoffman, Judge Hoffman at times. While there may have been members of the Black Panthers present, Fred Hampton was not there to whisper in Seal's ear. The purpose for Hampton to be in the film is to set up the effect of his death on Seal, which also was not the case. But before we talk about all of that, I think it's important to pick up the rest of the transcript to see exactly what led Judge Hoffman to order Bobby Seal to be bound and gagged. Racism, a desire to ensure a felony against him so he couldn't cross state lines and disempower the Black Panther founder? We'll pick it up from the end of the last statement. John, would you please uh, play Mr. Seal? And Don, you're going to have two roles. You're going to play Mr. Ferran, Chief Federal Prosecutor, and Mr. Kunstler. And I will play the court, a.k.a. Judge Hoffman. And we'll start with Mr. Seal. They own slaves. You're acting in the same manner, denying me my constitutional rights. Mr. Ferran? Never have I been in a courtroom, again, for 20 years and for many years daily in courtrooms all over this state and in many instances all over the United States. Have I seen the type of conduct that is not only constantly going on in this courtroom with the noise, with giggling, with laughter, with movement, with refusal to stand when the court gets on the bench, with comments being made by defendants to a jury, with outbursts in front of the jury, with participation in this conduct not only by the defendants but by many of the spectators? Well, I have been called a racist, a fascist. He has pointed to the picture of George Washington behind me and called him a slave owner and... They were slave owners. Look at history. As though I had anything to do with that. They were slave owners. You got him up there. He has been known as the father of our this country, and I would think that is a pretty good picture to have in a United States District Court. Mr. Kunstler? We all share a common guilt, Your Honor. I didn't think I would ever live to sit on a bench or be in a courtroom where George Washington was assailed by a defendant in a criminal case and a judge was criticized for having his portrait on the wall. I will not hear you now. I am asking you to be silent. I want to know, will you? Oh, look, it's a form of racism. Racism is what stopped my argument. Mr. Seal, do you want to stop? Or do you want me to direct the marshal? I want to argue the point about this so you can get an understanding of the fact that I have a right to defend myself. We will take a recess. Take that defendant into the room in there and deal with him as he should be dealt with in the circumstance. He really said that. 
And it was not fuck yourself from Bobby Seale that led to that. It was an argument about whether or not George Washington was a slave owner. First millionaire, famous general who never won a battle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mythology. The, mm-hmm. the film shows that anger of Fred Hampton's death was a cause for Seale's outburst, which led to him being bound and gagged. The timeline of the transcript does not support the narrative. Seal was bound and gagged on October 29th, 1969, and Hampton was killed on December 4th, 1969. And I think the truth makes the situation worse. The truth is that Seal's frustration and anger came solely out of the depression of his rights in the courtroom, and not from the death of his friend. Seal described what happened when he was brought back in the courtroom with an interview with Democracy Now! He said, quote, They tried to pick me up in this heavy chair, three guards, and the big guards started beating me in the head. Jerry Rubin jumped up out of his chair. Abby jumped up out of his chair trying to help me. Guards slammed them back into their chairs. I'm trying to turn my hand over, my right hand over, to get my, to get my fingers to the top of the gag. And then the other guard would turn my hand down and then hit me and knock me back, you know, and stuff like that. They really brutalized me. When back in the courtroom, the transcript shows that Judge Hoffman did instruct Seal that he could nod or shake his head to respond, as it's seen in the film. However, the gag was not doing the job, and Seal was able to speak. There was some back and forth between him and the judge, and Mr. Foran from the prosecution jumped in to blame Kunstler for the whole situation. I'm sure by now you are appalled at what is being discussed. But we may need to take a look at the treatment of Bobby Seale through a different lens. According to Seale, all of this was his strategy to have a mistrial declared. When the trial was not postponed due to his lawyer's absence, he asked to represent himself. He asked Judge Hoffman to coach him on the procedure of cross-examination. When all of his good-faith avenues at self-representation were thwarted, he moved on to disrupting the court and calling the judge names. His decorum in the courtroom was a combination of legal reasoning and political protest. One journalist wrote, There were times when it seemed that there was only one relationship in the courtroom, the struggle between Bobby Seale and Judge Hoffman. And I think this next exchange is rather telling. When Seal is brought back into the courtroom for the first time, this exchange took place. Don, would you please read for Mr. Kunstler? And John, would you please read for Mr. Seal? I want to say the record should indicate that Mr. Seal is seated on a metal chair. Each hand is handcuffed to the leg of the chair on both the right and the left sides, so he cannot raise his hands. And a gag is tightly pressed into his mouth and tied at the rear, and that when he attempts to speak, a muffled sound comes out as he has done several times since he has been bound and gagged. You don't represent me. Sit down, Kunstler. And I think this is really interesting. It goes to what Bobby Seale has said, that this was part of his strategy. This is no longer about him just representing himself. This is his personal, physical well-being, being in play. And he's telling Kunstler to sit down and shut up. That he doesn't want him speaking up on his behalf, because the more Kunstler does, the more Kunstler is representing him and undercutting the argument that he does not have representation. Well, and the volumes that it speaks that 
Bobby Seal could sit back and say, in all likelihood, this is how this is going to transpire mm-hmm. and is the greatest likelihood to get me a mistrial because they will not allow me representation, speaks sickening volumes about the institutional racism that he could count on this kind of treatment and hope that he would not die under this treatment Mm -hmm. so he could attempt to get a mistrial. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yaha Abdul-Mateen, the second's performance of Seal in this film is well done. I think he is incredible. But based on accounts from the trial, what is missing in his depiction is the cool and cunning approach that Seal took during the proceedings. Think less righteous anger and more 3D chess. Seal was bound and gagged on October 29th. The movie shows that Seal's release occurs just moments after he is brought back to the courtroom bound and gagged. The film shows his release comes at the request of a sympathetic Mr. Schwartz, the prosecuting attorney. In reality, Schwartz was not sympathetic in any way towards the plight of the defendants. In the transcript following Seal's return to the courtroom, Kunstler is pleading with the judge to release Seal, and Ferran is jumping in and blaming Kunstler for Seal's bondage. The only time Mr. Schwartz spoke up following Seal's return from the courtroom was to cross-examine a witness as if there was not a black man bound and gagged, just feet away from him. Bobby Seal was not bound and gagged for moments as shown in the film. He was bound and gagged in this manner for three days. When the chains became distracting on the first day, they were replaced by straps. In the film, Judge Hoffman never seems to understand that Seal is not Kunstler's client, but on October 30th, when Seal was still able to talk through his gag, Judge Hoffman called for a recess for the marshals to take him in the back and make adjustments. Kunstler asked for someone to be with Seal. The judge replied, He's not your client, you said. Mm-hmm. Oh, he knew what he was doing. And and this is Bobby Seal using, and I can't remember, the war strategist who was famous for this tactic. But you use your disadvantage or your weakness to your advantage. Mm-hmm. His disadvantage was he would be treated like this in the courtroom. So he figured out a way to use it to his advantage. Yeah, 3D chess. If it wasn't Schwartz who convinced the judge to declare a mistrial, then what happened? Over the next few days, Kunstler continued to advocate for Seal's release from bondage. The judge continued to complain about being called names that that no one was standing up when the court left the room, and the prosecution continued questioning witnesses. A letter was received from Charles Gary to address the situation, and on November 5, 1969, Judge Hoffman convicted Seal on multiple counts of contempt and declared a mistrial in his case. His contempt of court convictions were overturned on appeal. The federal government never sought to retry Seal for crossing state lines to incite a riot. Bobby Seal went on to write a couple memoirs from this time period. He taught black studies at Liberty University. He worked with Ben and Jerry's on an ice cream campaign and wrote a cookbook called Barbecuing with Bobby Seal. (laughs) The out-of-print cookbook is hard to find and goes for up to $250 online for a hardcover copy. Wow. And I tried to get a copy of it. I actually had it ordered from A Books 
And I received an email a couple days later saying the book I ordered isn't available. Bobby Seale is currently alive and well at the age of 84. And if you would like to see him talking about the court trial, we'll have it on the website at biopicsmostlysuck.com slash trial of the Chicago 7. His demeanor in interviews, if I remember watching him uh, speak on films and footage, but the notion of three-dimensional chess, because um, Bobby Seale is, you know, to the Caucasoid American public, this like nightmarish, um, you know, image of you know, black, angry black violence. But he's in, just incredibly restrained and calm mm-hmm. and reasoned when he speaks. I mean, when, I mean, when he speaks in when he spoke in public, he was definitely, you know, had fire in his belly mm-hmm. and all that. But when he's interviewed and all that, it's 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 very much the uh, the opposite of the the caricature that's drawn of him or the, the image that the American public, I think still have, I mean, if they know who he is, but um, yeah. still have of him and the Black pa- the Panther Party and all of that. And you're right. When I watched this footage of him talking about what happened when he was brought back into the courtroom bound and gagged, his demeanor is not one of anger or how dare this happen to me. It is just a matter of fact, this is what happened yeah. depiction. And I, I think this is uh, where we get into what we talked about in the film. Um, Sorkin did a good job at pushing the emotional buttons, because right after this is when we have Ramsey Clark and the voidier testimony without the jury present. And as it is seen in the film, his testimony was not found to be material by Judge Hoffman. According to the transcripts, he did not answer any questions about his views on whether or not the police incited the riots. His testimony was largely about instruction he gave to some underlings to ask some questions about the police force in Chicago. His concern in the testimony was in making sure that there was a free flow of information among law enforcement agencies that would be in town for the convention and to work to maintain stable community relations. There was nothing in his testimony about his office determining that the police started the riots or something that would have presented a clear cut and dry acquittal of the Chicago seven. So everything in the movie, with the exception that Kunstler did go to his home on a Sunday, everything regarding his testimony in the movie is absolutely false. Hmm. And what follows this in the film in Sorkin's construction of the story is David Dellinger, who was taken into custody during the trial in the film. Dellinger, a pacifist, is so frustrated that this information that could acquit them is not allowed into testimony that he punches out a bailiff. This is not what happened in any way. I mean, let's start off with the thing with Ramsey Clark in the film Mm -hmm. didn't happen. And now you have a pacifist who is punching out a bailiff responding to something that never happened. David Dillinger was the type of person that when he once punched out a fellow classmate at Yale, he was so remorseful, he cradled the guy in his arms until he came to. Why did he punch the guy out? That I have not been able to find. It may have what led him to being a pacifist as well. (laughs) That may have been a, a learning lesson for him. But this is the type of person this guy was. Dellinger was taken into custody during the trial for interrupting the testimony of James Reardon, the chief of Chicago police. 
During the exchange, he referred to Prosecutor Schultz as a Nazi and a snake. Otherwise, the film accurately portrays Dellinger and his demeanor as he tries to bridge old and new school demonstration practices. And his two daughters were not thrilled with his depiction of punching out a bailiff. No, no. I mean, if someone is... I I have a problem with that being in the film, then. This isn't about changing something up for the emotional impact. You're changing someone's very core of their morals. Their that's legacy. not okay. You're fucking with their legacy is what's happening. Yeah. yeah, and you're fucking with their legacy and talking to, talk about pushing a button. I mean, if you... Yeah. Who, who the fuck do you want to punch in that courtroom? Every uh-huh. figure of authority, right? Who's on the, at least, you know, serving the prosecution or supporting the prosecution. So that, yeah, that seems a, that seems an unfair to say the least, uh, what creative, creative license. And this is one I had a big problem with in the film. And maybe it would be a little less show to, a little less so if it were showing a frustration from the characters and I get having a pacifist punch someone because you're saying the frustration has reached such a degree. This is what it would lead this person of this character to do. But what precedes that is pure bullshit as well. Mm -hmm. If it were something true in the void dear testimony that he was, that the character was responding to as a frustration, I might get it being done more, but Dillinger, let's let's say number one, the movie shows him with a son. He had two sons and three daughters, five children in total. And he was such a pacifist that when one of the marshals in the courtroom tapped his daughter on the head to get her to be quiet during the trial, he did not become violent. The guy was a pacifist to the nth degree, was awarded for his pacifism. He He lived it day in, day out. And this isn't just taking license. This is undermining something that this person lived for. So, yeah, I do have a huge problem with that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's, that's, that takes down Sorkin in my estimation a bit. It really does. That's a hard one. For the film's finale, where Hayden reads the names of the troops killed in Vietnam since the trial started, this is not how the trial ended. The names were actually read by David Dillinger on October 15th to honor the moratorium to end the war in Vietnam, a march that was held in Washington, D.C. that same day. Dillinger started to read the names of American and Vietnamese dead and was quickly shut down by the court. Rennie Davis never did keep a notebook with names in it. This was created to set up the last scene. So he also took away Dillinger's genuine gesture to, to make a statement to have a big ending on it yes because what hayden doesn't have enough love and attention I, that that's none of that is okay with me well and remember it shows prosecutor schwartz standing up to honor the fallen as well in defiance of his own boss mm-hmm. so at the end it's getting across this idea that the chicago seven were so influential that they even influence a guy who in reality was a pit bull for the Nixon administration and who had zero sympathy for anything that happened. Yeah, so that seems to play into, again, a mythologizing of, and, a, and a romanticizing of 
this period, mm-hmm. these issues, that, again, this notion that everyone is standing at the end of the courtroom as the name at the end of the film in the courtroom, as the names are being read. It's like when Schindler's list turns color at the end. Mm-hmm. It's like, what the fuck? Yeah. It's the Holocaust, man. You know? Yeah. Anyway. But yeah, it's it's mythologizing Hayden. It didn't and... all become better. <laughs> Everyone no. didn't unite and go, oh, yeah, oh, yes, the prosecution. No. The prosecution has come to an epiphany. We now understand the depths of the atrocities in the... Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's disturbing. Well, you know, I mean, Sorkin, maybe he was... Oh, no, this was earlier in Sorkin. Remember when he was busted at LAX with, like, a pound of uh, mushrooms and cocaine? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I would say knowing that about the depiction of Dellinger, Sorkin lived up to what the bar he set. He definitely did not tell the truth in any way. Huh. Uh, the trial ended on February 18th, 1970. The seven defendants were acquitted of conspiracy charges, but fined $5,000 each. Five of them, Davis, Dellinger, Hayden, Hoffman, and Rubin, were convicted of crossing state lines with the intent to riot. Freins and Weiner were acquitted of all charges. The seven defendants and their attorneys also received prison sentences for more than 170 contempt citations leveled at them by Judge Hoffman, which ranged from a two-and-a-half-month stint for Weiner to four years and 18 days for Kunstler. But the wheels of justice turned, and in 1972, all charges against the defendants were dropped. Among other reasons, the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit cited Judge Hoffman's antagonistic courtroom demeanor. Charges against Seal were also dropped. A subsequent investigation and report concluded that the 1968 demonstration's bloody turn was instigated by the police. Abby Hoffman tried to give Judge Abby Hoffman tried to give Judge Hoffman a copy of one of his books. Jackass. Did any of those guys ever actually do the jail time for their contempt in, charges? Until 72, yeah. So all of them were in jail? For the contempt, yeah. Did Kunstler lose his law license? Not that I uh, have heard, no. Mm. But I can check that and put it on the bumper at the end. Inside the book he wrote, Julius, you radicalize more young people than we ever could. You are the nation's top yuppie. Damn. I'll give it to Abby for that yeah, one. Yeah, good on. Uh, yeah. Uh, good good on, Abby. Uh, uh, okay, I'll go with that one. Well, let's talk about what became of the Chicago 7. Because I, I think since we're talking about legacy with Dellinger, let's talk about what they went on to. And this is where I think we're really going to see some heroes will rise and some heroes will fall. Although, obviously, there's not a love around the table here for Abby Hoffman. No. For seven young men, with the exception of Dellinger, who was 20 years older than any of them, who were committed to social change, I think it will be interesting to see what they did with the rest of their lives in mm-hmm. that regard. I have no doubt they were committed to the cause of ending the Vietnam War. I mean, I would say, I mean, immediately they had a stake in it mm-hmm. with the draft. So they definitely had a burning platform there. I don't doubt that they did not like the fact Americans and Vietnamese were dying in the war. But were they committed to similar causes when the cameras weren't pointed in their direction? Abby Hoffman. Hoffman worked on left-wing causes after the trial. In 1973, he was arrested for cocaine possession. He fled, lived under various pseudonyms, and settled in upstate New York under the name Barry Freed in 1980. 
he was barely recognizable after having rhinoplasty to change his facial appearance. He killed himself in 1989 with 150 phenobarbital tablets and liquor. And I know we were talking earlier, Don, and you questioned about uh, the drug charge on him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you assumed he was set up in some way. No, I asked if he was. Ah, here's what happened. What happened was he was arrested with three other men for trying to sell $36,000 worth of cocaine. In, in which year? Uh, this yeah, would, what's that in? In 73. What? <laughs> What's that in current real dollars? Yeah, this this isn't a cop planting a baggie on him. This okay. is thirty six thousand dollars. Just kilos arriving in, in ships. And during the investigation, the police said they did not know Abby Hoffman was one of the people they were tailing. They only found out when the arrest was made, and he was booked, and they were surprised. $213,254.59 worth of cocaine in today's dollars. Jerry Rubin embraced capitalism and became a stockbroker. <laughs> well, alrighty. <laughs> you gotta fucking love Jerry Rubin. Yeah, that guy. That guy, man. <laughs> Sorry. That was just well delivered. <laughs> In 1994, he died after being hit by a car. He was working for a multi-level marketing company, pitching a health drink called Wow. A multi-level. So, a Ponzi scheme. Pyramid scheme. Pyramid scheme, yeah. Would be multi-level marketing. Yes. Yes. Tom Hayden went on to marry Jane Fonda, served in the California legislature, and died in 2016. Mm-hmm. Rennie Davis became a follower of the guru Prem Rawat and established the Foundation for a New Humanity. The foundation offers life coaching, spiritual training, and crystals, quote, chosen for their properties to assist your journey to evolve. The foundation is still active today, although Davis passed away in February of 2021. We will have a link for his foundation on our website at biopixmostlysuck.com slash trial of the Chicago 7. David Dellinger, who to meet Dellinger is the hero in this thing. I, in my, you know... Sometimes in my research, much like with Petey Green, there's someone who was never on my radar who just becomes my favorite. And David Dillinger is that guy. He continued his work as a peaceful activist and taught at Goddard College's adult degree program. For his life of peaceful activism, he received the Peace Abbey Courage of Conscience Award on September 26, 1992. He was arrested at a sit-in at the 1996 Democratic Convention, his first convention since 1968. Arrested with him was Abby Hoffman's son. David Dellinger died in 2004 at the age of 88. Wow. What does that say? As we talked about, Hoffman didn't like Mobe's approach. Mm-hmm. And Dellinger, a pacifist, mm-hmm is arrested at a sit-in with Hoffman's son. Well, I guess Abby Hoffman's son liked Moeb's approach better. Maybe. Maybe. Pacifism. I've, I've dabbled in it. <laughs> Say what you want about what? the tenets of National Socialism. At least it's an ethos. What's that from? <laughs> I'm sorry, Lebowski. Uh, oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Jerry Freunds and Lee Weiner. Freunds went on to a long career in science and academia. He worked for OSHA and taught at UCLA. He is now retired at the age of 82. 
Weiner briefly taught sociology at Rutgers. He was overheard at a party making a joking remark about founding a new communist party. <laughs> he was fired. Oh, for fuck's sake. I'm not shocked, but it's just fucking disgusting. He is currently 81 years old and shares my birthday. Hi. Oh. We're birthday buddies. Freinz and Weiner are the last surviving members of the Chicago 7. But if we expand the Chicago 7 to the Chicago 8, then Bobby Seal, at the age of 84, resides in Liberty, Texas. In 1973, Seal ran for the mayor of Oakland, California, and came in second out of nine candidates. He soon grew tired of politics and turned to writing, producing A Lonely Rage in 1978, and the cookbook we talked about, Barbecuing with Bobby, in 1987, was actually the year. And now, it's time to talk about a letter grade for Trial of the Chicago 7, A through F, no pluses or minuses, please, on an A through F letter grade, what do you give Trial of the Chicago 7? I'm struggling between a C and a D. Just the portrayal of Dillinger itself just takes it down so far for me. I don't know. I'm feeling a little stuck. We'll move to John. John? I'm going with a C only because of the uh, redemptive value of the emotional, let's call it truthiness. (laughs) (laughs) The emotional, I, I think the emotional core gets it somewhere in the C range. I would give it a D. And the reason why is definitely Sorkin had a bias towards the protesters because there were there were things mentioned that the protesters did as well, which were left out of the film. There were, um, I, I think, antics that wouldn't have played well on Rubin and Hoffman in the characterization, mm-hmm. like wiping their feet on the judge's robes. That would have taken some people out of thinking, okay, they're making a point, and I think people watching the film would have thought that's a point too far. So I think that he definitely did some editing and reconstructing in order to present the protesters in the best light. And at the same time, the police were definitely a a villain from studies that were done following the demonstrations. But I think the scene in which the police are shown creating a confrontation by being on the hill when that didn't happen, to corner the protesters, I, I think that's a bridge too far. Mm. So I say a D. No passing grade here. Or I, I guess, do you, no. Yeah, you C, pass with a D. C is a passing grade. No, you still pass Barely. with a, you still pass with a D, but you just, you uh, don't get credit. And the whole thing about Dillinger really just, I don't know, it, it edges me towards F, but I'll, I'll go D. Okay, I'm going to go with a C. And... Dillinger took it down to a D for me, but I think I go back to what John was saying around the emotional truth to it. And I don't take the same umbrage that you do with how the police were portrayed in Taking the Hill because it has become so well known as such a prevalent tactic of law enforcement when a city wants to antagonize protesters or corner them. Up to today, I mean, all last summer, we repeatedly heard about how they ensured that they would chase down protesters who attempted to get away, so they were de-escalating, and then they'd end up blocked in on the other side of where they could run. So I, I think it portrays the 
overall intent and the demeanor of law enforcement and city government. So I stick with the C. Okay. C from Don, a C from John, and a D from Rob. Whew, that was a heavy discussion. No, that's just a that's a hard year to mm-hmm. talk about. Yeah. In so many contexts. It's just a fucking depressing year. Oh, it's always interesting too, because again, just going back to this mythology of the sixties stuff, it's like, you know, I think people paint the summer of love as their ideal. And these are these are brief fleeting peaks in what is otherwise and just an utterly destructive and really chaotic time. Yeah. 1968. Jesus Christ, man. I mean, we got what MLK, Bobby, Bobby Kennedy, MLK, RFK, JFK. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and I think given your point, that's why I give it a D as well is because I think for people who didn't live through it, there needs to be a responsibility to have a truth to it and to take some of the license just for presenting a frustration or creating a situation to create that frustration and the bias Sorkin took as well. It's, it's kind of like one of the quotes we read at the beginning of the episode, which is the concern that current generations are not going to understand what happened. So I would recommend that people go and watch one of the documentaries out there uh, about the Chicago 8 and the Chicago 7, because in there also is the basically the full footage from that confrontation in the park with the statue as well. So you'll have links on all of that on your website? Yeah, I will. I will. But yeah, I think there's... I think there's been so much romanticization done about the late 60s, and especially with the protests that took place in 2020 uh, against social injustice, is that there there is, I think it's important to make sure people understand what it is, not someone's interpretation on telling a narrative. Mm-hmm. Well, because I think in romanticizing it also undermines the heaviness and the seriousness of the stakes involved. Mm-hmm. People don't lightly march in the streets knowing that they are going to be greeted by a militarized police force. Yeah. Or, for that matter, angry white supremacists. Or, you know, more often a large Venn diagram there. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, John. Thank you. Thank you, Don. Thank you. That wraps up our two-part episode about Trial of the Chicago 7 for Biopics Mostly Suck. If you liked it, please subscribe using your favorite podcasting platform. We are literally everywhere. You can find all of the sources we used to build this episode at biopicsmostlysuck.com slash trial of the Chicago 7. I usually throw some other goodies on the episode pages like videos or pictures. And for the trial of the Chicago 7, there are videos of Rennie Davis and David Dellinger in the time leading up to the protests and a video of Bobby Seale talking about his experience in the courtroom. Technically, we're still on a hiatus. We have an episode in the can, and I'm working on a few more, but 
life balance, baby. We're going to continue to have a schedule of occasional podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and you'll get those episodes as soon as they are ready. How are we doing with this project? Go like us on Facebook and Twitter at the handle of that mostly suck or send us your feedback through our website, biopicsmostlysuck.com and you can recommend which movies you would like us to use for an episode. And we will share the true story behind that movie based on a true story. Take care, everyone. <laughs>